Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Hi everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to another episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Now you've asked, we've listened, we've delivered. Finally, after years, months, weeks, days of trying, Neil Crompton is on the pod. How good. It's been a little while. Great to catch up with Crompo recently. A little bit of a Zoom chat. Would have rather do it in person, but these COVID times, I'm sick of saying that term. I I promise I'll stop saying it. Uh, Meant that that's the only way that we could do things, but... It's good timing because, of course, Crompo's got his new book out very soon, Best Seat in the House. It's out late this month. You can order it now, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. We talked about a bunch of stories on this pod. We talked about (laughs) the time that he navigated and co-drove with Dame Edna Everidge at the Australian Grand Prix in the Celeb Race, testing an Indy car for Tasman in the US in 96, and, of course, his great relationship with Peter Brock as childhood hero, friend, teammate, mentor, all of those things. And... We hadn't even stopped and twigged. We didn't plan this, that this pod would roll out on the anniversary of Peter's passing. It only just occurred to me when I sat down uh, to read the opener for this pod, but I guess there's something in the way all these things tend to, to turn out. And the, the other thing, too, is we have a chat about Crompo's health. So many people have asked us how he's travelling. He tells us on this podcast, so stay listening for how he's travelling. So here we go. Buckle up. Enough of me. Let's get into it. Time to start Neil Crompton on the V8 Sleuth podcast, Powered by Repco. Neil Crompton, it's been asked, we have delivered. The, the punters wanted you on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. We have got there. We have dragged you kicking and screaming to your Zoom screen. Uh, you're on the pod. Good to have you, mate. How are you travelling? <laughs> on the pod. What a shocking way to start a conversation. Hello, Aaron. Hello, everybody. Uh, yes, kicking and screaming with your foot on my throat. Here I am. I had no choice. He's pointing a weapon at me, folks. Uh, I've successfully dodged and weaved for what seems like a very long period of time, but I'm trapped. Uh, yeah, so pot away. <laughs> it's the lingo that the young people use today, Neil. Yes. We'll catch you up on it by the end of this. I'm, yeah, I'm pot sure. used to be something that had peas in it. Back in your day, we're not going back to Ballarat 1970s here, mate. We're, no, staying we're, the, no, <laughs> we're staying. So shut up and move on. <laughs> <laughs> we're staying in the, the 2020s. Um, the reason why we wanted to catch up is uh, for the last little while, you've been a busy beaver. I've been assisting in the background on a little thing called Best Seat in the House. It's your first ever book. It's coming out uh, early October. Um, have you enjoyed the whole process? We know you as a TV guy talking and being in front of us, have you enjoyed the process of of writing a book, something a bit different? It has been really different. And um, along the way, uh, I tried really hard to die, which made it uh, even more complicated. So um, luckily I managed to to dodge all of that. So um, it's been an interesting process. It's been a bigger process than I thought it might have otherwise been. And, you know, you and others have said over a period of time it's something you should do and I've probably been a little bit dismissive of the idea because I didn't think there was any great interest in it. Um, but there certain, certainly seems to be a few folks out there that, that have got a bit of an interest in it and um, it's kind of fun in a sense to just stop and think because 
you know, I say this to my colleagues in the sport like Mark Larkin, Mark Scaife, Brad Jones, Glenn Seaton and others, we've kind of all lived the same Peter Pan existence. Every day has been much the same as the other and we've been doing that since our, at some point in our 20s or even earlier than that. So, you know, we might have got greyer and we might have got a little bit more wrinkled, but we're still all passionately connected to the same thing. And after a while, it just becomes a blur and you don't realise until you draw a breath and stop and look backwards just how long that journey has been. It's a cliche, but it, it has been an unbelievably long period of time. So um, the fun part of that, thanks to you, was actually trying to unpack that and put it in some kind of sense, in some sense of order, because it's actually unbelievably complicated. And then you think, oh, hang on, what came first? You know, what 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 is all the detail around this? And so uh, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. And then, as you know, we've we've kind of unearthed all sorts of stuff. So there's there's um, what it has done, Mr. Noonan, is it's probably galvanised me into trying to make sure that we've got a bit more of an A to Z of what's going on. Because somewhere along the line, my kids or my wife or someone one day will um, an archaeologist will dig up all this crap and go, wow, what's all this? But uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of material. So I'm going to have to get the scanner out at some stage and so many photos and clippings and things that are just so disconnected at the moment that at least the book brings some of it together. It does. The book is called Best Seat in the House. It's available for pre-order now. So great Christmas present. I'll do the, the plug bit now and get that out of the way. Low, low price of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, One-time special deals, no set of steak knives involved. Uh, the website address is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Uh, the book is out early October. So if you're listening to this later on, it's already out. If you're listening to it beforehand, it's not out yet. Neil, Sorry. wake up, wake up. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the plug bit's done. The show notes have the link to where you can buy the book as well if you're uh, able to click to your show notes now through the podcast. Neil has no idea what I'm talking about or what show notes or podcasts are. He doesn't do social media. He doesn't know what any of this is. So just nod and say yes. All I know is that there'll be a point where they're selling by the kilo. Oh, come on now. Come on now. You don't get your carrots with your books, that's for sure. Uh, The title is apt. We ummed and ahed about what the title for this would be, but I think this came very early in the process. Normally you have to kind of write the guts of a book to make the title become apparent, but the title was pretty clear early on because you have had the best seat in the house, whether it be steering a race car, television roles, all sorts of stuff. You've done it literally all. Look, honestly, you know, we have a bit of fun together, but um, the truth of the matter is that I've had an, an amazing journey through my motor racing um, and everything affiliated around it. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, as we've trawled through everything chronologically, you know, I've come to realise that that is the case. So, you know, lots of interesting viewpoints, lots of interesting um, experiences and uh, and I guess one of the ways that I've encapsulated in conversation with you and w- with others is I've probably been through the University of Motorsport. I've seen it from many different angles. So... Uh, therefore, learn lots of different things, good, bad, and indifferent about what what it, what the industry is all about, and the people and the characters, and what drives it. Um, so, unbelievably fortunate, incredibly thankful that I've been able to do that. And you know, if I just go all the way back to the very beginning, at my core, at your core, and I'm sure many that are listening to us and and my peers and colleagues. We just, we love it. We love what we do. We have good days and bad days. And some days you really want to pitch it and 
walk away and all the rest of it. But at its core, um, it's a great pleasure to be involved in something that you enjoy. And so it's made the, whatever it's been, what, 40-odd years more, in fact, um, go too damn fast. You know, it's been very, in broad terms, very, very pleasurable. So you know, pretty cool to attend it, to, to dream about being a part of it, to be a fan of it, to drive, to talk about it, um, to share the experiences from at many different levels, to organise it. So, you know, there's been a whole raft of different viewpoints to promote it. Um, I've, I've enjoyed all of that. And, um, yeah, I am genuinely pleased um, to be able to share it. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose that I wrongly imagine that, Oh, well, everybody knows what has gone on there and, you know, it all makes perfect sense and everybody understands. You sort of forget that because it's been such a long period of time, there's chunks of the audience that weren't even born when half of the madness unfolded in my life. So, uh, <laughs> so that, 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 you know, it's fun to be able to, to share that. There's so many elements to the book. We won't give away. There's a whole pile of great stories that I'm sure people have never heard before. There's a few old faithful favourites in there as well. Probably my favourite one. I'd love you to to retell it if you can. Is the day that you got dobbed in to be the navigator for Dame Edna Everidge in the Adelaide Celebrity <laughs> Challenge Grand Prix race in nineteen ninety three? Probably the most fearful for your life on a racetrack ever. I would have thought. In the most bizarre circumstances. So short version, long story. Uh, I was driving for Bob Forbes and the GIO Commodore at the time. We didn't have the budget to do the Adelaide event in the touring car. There was some reason. I can't remember exactly what it was. But anyway, we weren't doing it. Holden at the time were heavily invested in motorsport and that remained for a long period of time. And they'd just done the new Calibra, which is actually quite a fancy little thing, little two-door coupe. And um, they put a lot of time, money and energy into being the backers of the celebrity race. Tim Pemberton, who was the then uh, publicity guy, guru, that was looking after all of Holden's motorsport activities, came up with a ripping idea, which was to have an all-girl celebrity race. And someone, I presume his nickname was Plastic, Tim Pemberton was Plastic, had this brainwave that it would be a wonderful idea to have Dame Edna Everidge as one of the inverted commas girls. And, um, and a token bloke. They had one token bloke in the late and great Clive James, who's a wonderful human being. So um, I got roped into being the chief trainer. Um, so, I, you know, it was, was going to be a quiet period. So I took that on. And I'd done a lot of different corporate drive days for Holden at the time. So the brief was, you know, go and teach Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna's alter ego, how to drive a race car. Yeah, no worries. So um, he happened to be in a concert tour at the time, a performing tour that had him in Adelaide during the Grand Prix Festival. And so the deal was to go and meet up with Barry at the Hyatt in Adelaide, take him out to Adelaide International Raceway and teach him how to drive a, a race car. So I stand in the foyer of the Hyatt. Let, I'm going to lie now and say it's called Monday or Tuesday of the race week. Barry comes down and he's... Barry, very theatrical, incredibly articulate, probably exactly like you might imagine somebody as urbane and as and uh, as articulate and as talented as somebody like him. If you stop and think about what he does as an entertainer, it's pretty phenomenal and he's done it over a long period of time. 
So immediately says to me that he has zero interest in trying to figure out how to race a car, but how about we go and have uh, some nice time together and we go and have a picnic. <laughs> so this sort of wasn't really in the frame of reference. So the, instead of going to Adelaide International Raceway, we picked up a picnic basket from the concierge at the Hyatt in Adelaide and went somewhere over near the Adelaide Zoo and sat in the gardens and talked about stuff. I can't remember what because it's too many years ago now, but it had nothing to do with driving a car. So as time unfolded and the relationship grew, it became extremely apparent that Barry didn't drive because as a VIP and as an international celebrity, he's driven everywhere in hire cars. You know, he just turns up and that's somebody else's problem. So I kind of in the back of my mind went, mm, this is a problem. So um, anyway, when we get to the event, he can drive sort of, but only just barely. So these things are manuals. And it's a, it's, a, it's a little like a production racing car. It's got a racing seat and a harness and, you know, you got a, there's a roll cage and you've got to wear a helmet and you need to know where the track goes and you need to be aware of what other people are doing. So I'm actually deemed with the responsibility by what was then known as CAMS, Confederation of Australian Motorsport, as the head trainer, to sign off on Barry being competent to hold a temporary CAMS licence. So we get to, I don't know, Friday night, and the truth of the matter was that he really couldn't drive. And they said, well, you have to make a decision. Can he or can he not drive this racing car? And I went, well, I don't really want to say that he can because it puts me in an awkward position because the truth of the matter is he can't drive. <laughs> or if he does, it's very poorly. Um, so they all went into a flat spin because you can imagine how much promotion, how much money, time and effort's gone into the notion of Dame Edna every driving a race car at the Grand Prix. And here's this imbecile uh, would-be racing driver saying that, no, he can't. And so push and shove ended up being that the compromise was that um, CAMS will issue a licence, but you have to supervise him so you can get in the passenger seat. I'm like, oh, my God, no. <laughs> so how did I end up in the place in space where I'm not in my what was then known as a Group A touring car running around with Jones and Scaife and Seaton and all the rest of them and I've somehow ended up in a Holden Calibra production car in the passenger seat with a bloke who wears makeup. So um, we go car racing, he's at the back of the field and uh, he's terrible. Like it's, you know, and the first thing he does is... Um, at the end of Wakefield Street where you need to turn right at turn four, he sort of half starts driving in the direction of the escape road, so I'm yanking on the wheel. No, 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 Barry, turn right, turn right. The other thing I need to mention is that when Barry is in character, then you're not allowed to refer to Barry. You have to refer to her as Dame Edna because she won't respond to Barry and vice versa. So you can imagine what this does to my poor small brain so i'm trying to wrestle the steering wheel to understand the second gear right hand to turn four second gear left hand to turn five and remember this is back in the day when the track was still in its longer configuration so there's a there's a, a bit to the whole thing so while i'm busy worrying about the motor racing consequences dame edna loosens the seat belts no no safety net back in those days windows down starts heaving gladioli, which are flowers, out the window, <clears throat> and I'll try and do the voice and I can't do yeah. 
possums, you know, to the flag marshals. That's pretty good. That's and, very, you know, very good. Very yeah, good. To the flag marshals and the punters, uh, which just made me shrink in the seat even more. So funnier than a circus. So, And I had an extra rear vision mirror fitted so that I could see whether any of the guns that were coming were likely to climb over the top of us. So, And we're doing, again, I'm going to lie, we're doing 70 Ks when everybody else is doing 170 Ks. And there's a funny culmination in the story. And, and, and there is a photo floating around. I think that you, we may have shared it with you, but um, uh, I keep wanting to say, Barrick, Dame Edna's in a pink race suit, open face helmet with the horn rim glasses. The helmet and the glasses are covered in diamantes. And she is covered in the thickest makeup in the history of the world. Like I reckon it went on with a trowel and it was pink spack filler. It was dead set an inch thick. So, and every now and again, and I'm in a helmet and the GIO race it, I'm sort of looking across going, beam me up. This is bullshit. You know, like just so, and uh, so we, uh, and in those days, you know, the big battle in Formula One was Williams versus McLaren, and they're all at the exit end of the pit lane because they were the hot dogs in town at the time. And um, this is right at the point where we're, we're sadly on the eve of not very far away from losing Ed and Senna, um, you know, and he's finishing his McLaren relationship. So we come out of the final corner, we turn onto the pit straight, and I can see that Ron Dennis, the team principal for McLaren and Ed and Senna, is standing near the wall sort of watching the chaos of the, you know, this production car race dead set adjacent to those guys as we go past the mclaren garage which must have been right near the end of the, the pit lane dame edna instead of changing from second to third gear and going across the gate in the h pattern gearbox wrong slots it and rams it into first gear with her i keep having to think about the her him thing with her foot jammed on the throttle First gear and it goes ming, 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 ming. You can almost hear valve springs unraveling before you, you know, before your very eyes and ears. And then she spins around, like I can still picture it vividly to this day. And she looks straight at me. And then in the wrong voice, now Barry's voice goes, Help me, help me, help me, which <laughs> wasn't the Dame Edna voice. So <laughs> So it was like, oh, so I yanked it out of first gear and stuck it in neutral. Said, Put your foot on the clutch, foot on the clutch, and stuck it in second or third or something, and off we've gone. But I've been haunted to this day by the notion of Dame Edna, pink suit, open face helmet, diamantes, makeup, turning like it's in the middle of a full blown nightmare with Barry's voice going, help me, help me, help me. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so strange, weird stuff that you end up doing to make a living, Aaron. Um, don't follow in these footsteps, children. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. You have found yourself in some interesting places. This mad journey of racing has taken you to some very strange situations, good, bad, and indifferent, as you mentioned earlier, but that is a highlight for me. I think that's my favorite story in the book that is, that is retold in there, but there's, there's so many things to, to go through that um, have come into focus by us sitting down and, and talking about it. We've worked on this for the best part of the last 
what six or seven months, and obviously there's a period where you were you're crook in the middle. So uh, you'll do anything to get a, a pause in doing a book project. I thought that was a bit extreme, though. You go into those sorts of levels of a um, of a cancer situation. That was just a bit too much, Cromley. But um, there's a few things along the way that I wanted to raise with you. And one of the things that I loved. Um, we worked together, as a lot of our listeners will know and remember, on the Shannon's Legends of Motorsport series, which yeah. we did a couple of series on Channel 7, on 7 Mate, where we looked back at a lot of the great people, great cars, great races, uh, golden Channel 7 vision. And on one of those occasions, a couple of times, we filmed at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama, which, by the way, are a good friend of ours here at the pod. Um, jump on the website, Museums Bathurst. Uh, and also their Facebook page to uh, keep abreast of what's going on. Obviously, difficult times um, at the moment in Australia and the museums had some situations where, because it's in New South Wales, uh, the opening days and times are not as they normally are, but keep following them on, on social media. One of the things I wanted to fast track to, though, was we filmed there with a bunch of guys, you'll remember, Larry Perkins, Alan Grice, Colin Bond, Alan Moffat, but we found ourselves in, in a very strange situation where, um, there was a new star that was born at that filming. It was never seen on television. It wasn't Neil Crompton. It was your then five-year-old daughter, Sienna. Oh. Tell us the story about how she turned two Bathurst legends into her backup singers. I thought you were going to get into some deep and meaningful conversation about all those wonderful people that you're talking about that really... Well, we could do that as well. We could form the legend well. of, uh, of Bathurst because... Um, you know, it is a special place and we, we love going there and, you know, I I love looking back at that series because I think it's ended up being a very special marker in time because we've been able to get together the vast majority of those that were the stars of the period and share the stories, which I'm really proud of. And, in fact, I'm even more proud today. You know, I was never really, and I know I've jumped off topic here, but I was never really a huge one to look over my shoulder. Um, you know, I sort of felt that yesterday's race cars and yesterday's racers were yesterday's newspapers effectively and it's all about today and tomorrow. But as you get a bit older, your you, perspective changes on that stuff. So uh, those couple of series were really cool and, you know, we're, we're sadly we're losing some of those great people, John Harvey, Peter Williamson. So I'm so pleased that we had those two individuals in our program because, you know, I'm they were great contributors to our sport and I'm going to sadly, and we're all going to sadly miss them. But anyway, back to the point. Um, yes, uh, I've got to, we've, we've done this story. Go buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've got to try and remember the sequence. So I'm standing, Nathan Prendergast is the sort of producer, director. He's the general manager these days of Supercars Media, so he's effectively my boss. You know, you're involved in this circus. I'm hosting this circus. We're in the middle of the, Bathurst Museum, and I'm standing on a stage and, I, you know, we were pre-recording lots of elements of these programs. We, we wanted to have an audience. We wanted the passionate around us. And, uh, you know, as folks listening probably know, you, you, you know, you need an area to work from when you're doing one of these shows so you can stick your bag and your clothes and get changed. And the technical term in the broadcast industry is a green room. So we had a, a little area. It was a, I think it was a kitchenette or something that was set aside uh, in, the, in the museum and I was, um, I can't remember what it was, maybe throwing to a break or something, or in a pause or we were between episodes because we did multiple episodes with different characters, you know, an, an Alan Moffat version and a Larry Perkins version and so on. And then all of a sudden standing on the 
stage, I could hear this sort of slightly distracting noise uh, and it was so, sort of annoying because, you know, with my executive producer's hat on, it's your, your first response is, who the bloody hell's making that noise? Can they shut up? You know, because we're trying to make a TV show. And one of the things that you learn about making uh, television in the pre-record scenarios is that you can't believe the number of sources in the universe for noise. So if you go and stand somewhere uh, to make something, it's a staggering uh, reality that there's so many aeroplanes, backhoes, barking dogs, horns blowing, trucks reversing, and general noise that you never thought existed until you go to do something. So um, anyway, we've got a racket going on. And what it turned out to be upon further investigation, because it sounded like singing, and it was, and it was my five-year-old, Sienna, and she was singing um, Your Little Teapot with vocal backing from Colin Bond, Bathurst winner, 1969, runner-up in the famous 1977 race, and adding a bit of further vocal backing and egging on the process was the winner of the 1977 Bathurst, Alan George Moffat. So you just got to stop and think about, okay, hang on, let's just back up for a second here. These two blokes are sit right at the core of the history of the sport, you know, rally champions, sports sedans, sports car champions, touring car champions, Bathurst winners, international travellers in motorsport, big names when I grew up in the sport and subsequently big names for many decades, kind of done it all. Great guests on the program, want to talk to them about the ins and outs of how they did this at Turn 3, Lap 5, Day 7 of this activity, out the back singing I'm a Little Teapot with my kid. It's like the world's gone sadly sideways. Uh, yes, I'm just waiting to tune into one of those singing shows one day, and there she is, Sienna, who's much older than five now. She's, how yeah. old is Sienna? 13, 14? Uh, she's about to be 12. But, nearly 12, um, nearly 12. So we can, we'll, yeah, we'll see so, her on a show somewhere soon, I'm sure. So the funny thing is she calls Bondy Teapot now, so whenever she <laughs> sees him. So so just fast-forwarding other aspects of the story, and there's another story involving Bondy in this book where I blew up one day in the commentary boxes, you know, but... The, the funny thing is we've got a great relationship with Colin and Robin, and obviously Alan's in a bit of strife these days, so, you know, we've, we're all concerned about him and praying for him. But we went up and saw Rob and Cole not long ago. They've got a lovely uh, little holiday house next to some water up the road, and uh, it was blowing a gale when we went up there. And, again, I sort of get a wry smile because, I mean, blokes like Bondi and, and Alan were pin-ups of mine as a kid. In fact, just over my shoulder here, I've got a lovely poster on the wall in my office signed by Alan of, you know, all the wonderful cars that he drove over the period. But here's Colin in his backyard in a 30-knot wind next to the water trying to repair a somewhat busted kite that he wants to fly with Sienna. <laughs> Sienna, I'm like, this is kind of bizarre. Like, <laughs> you know, here's a bloke that I used to fork out, you know, dollars to watch, lean on the fence at Cold or Phillip Island or Sandown and, you know, oh, he's in the Marlborough Holden dealer team. Oh, my God, it's Colin Bond. Now he's repairing a kite with my brat. <laughs> so, and mind you, it didn't, fly, it didn't fly very well either. So, uh, yeah, so Bondy was a great race driver but not so good a kite pilot. 
not so good, not so good. But a very good backing vocalist. If everyone, if anyone good, wants to yeah. sign him up for any events in the future, he's, yeah, he's I'm capable. I'm a, a little teapot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's the clip for the uh, promo for the pod. That's for sure. Um, one of the things we talk about on this pod a bit because we're in is old stuff, memorabilia. Um, we've got a, a partner of ours, the MotorsportTrader.com. They uh, keep motorsport memories alive. They sell all sorts of stuff, whether it's panels, it's race suits, it's parts of race cars. Uh, check them out on their website. They've got some pretty cool stuff. Are you a hoarder? I, I tend to find everyone I talk to on the pod is either, no, I don't keep anything, I don't care, or yes, I've kept everything that I've ever worn, owned, or had from my racing career. Where do you fit on the the scale of one to ten on that? Bit of an each way bet. Uh, so five, five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've. Um kept some things but not all things and in fact funny story so it must be a few years ago because we haven't been attending the place because it's now suburbia but i went out to Oran park once and i took garbage bags full of race team crap you know shirts trousers see the funny thing about race team gear is that as cool as it looks on telly and as wonderful as it is to see all your stars and heroes prancing around that stuff you wouldn't be seen dead in half of it most of the time and a lot of polyesters died to make a lot of that gear <laughs> so um, so I went out there at one stage and it would have been sort of like an archive of the history of sport. I had garbage bags full of it and then I just went, hey, folks, you know, anyone want a shirt or whatever? And then I stood back and it was like going down to St Kilda Pier and opening up fish and chips and then standing back <laughs> and running. It was about 5,000 seagulls came from nowhere and it just started to brawl over shirts and tracksuit pants and ugly shorts and, and it all just evaporated before my very eyes. But I do have a couple of odds and ends. I've kept a few helmets. I've probably got half a dozen odd helmets. Um, I've got a bit of a rule. There's nothing motorsport in the house, like nothing. Um, and so what's happened now is that the office is a mausoleum. So at some stage, if this joint turns into a Pompeii-like, uh, you know, lava, you know, we just get completely covered in ash, they'll unearth this low joint in... 3,000 years and go, hmm, why are all these strange coloured uniforms? Why is this bloke curled up under the desk talking to some bloke about a book? But, you know, so, yeah, so there's helmets, there's some suits. Um, I actually have a, a beautiful suit that Peter gave me, Peter Brock, in the 80s, uh, dating back to when he was driving for Bill Patterson in the late 70s, which is framed. So I've got a few suits that have been framed, but not a lot of stuff in reality. I think... There might be in the roof of the house a few bags because actually Gizzy asked me a while ago whether I'd kept anything from the Winfield Nissan era because remember I only drove that car once at Bathurst in 1992 and and Scaife the Scuzz Bucket is the only bloke that I ever drove for that didn't give me the suit, so he took it back. (laughs) (laughs) But what I did have was uh, I did keep the Winfield Racing bag and I think there might be something else that was... They had really groovy bags and Shane was going to do some paddock bash thing somewhere where he had a car painted up like the Winfield car and he asked if I had any of the stuff and I couldn't find it but because oh, I was going to give it to him because I'm never going to pull out and apart from anything else, you're not allowed to say Winfield anymore. So you'll have to blip that or whatever. Um, you're okay. So, uh, yeah, there's not much here in reality but there's, uh, there's probably a couple of things that are a bit special here and there. There's one or two little reminders of the madness that is. Or yeah, yeah. Oh no, it still is. It's still mad. It hasn't. It hasn't slowed down. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, 
and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. What's um, one of the things we talked about a lot in this book, and it's a common link to you, is obviously Brock, you mentioned him before. Why did he take such a shining to you? Because you two seem to get along like peas in a pod. Uh, was it the fact that he was the guy that you went and watched race rallycross at Calder and he was your, your childhood hero that you felt that natural affinity to him and clearly it was, it was reciprocated? I think he must have been a poor judge of character. <laughs> Come on now. I don't know. Um, look, I don't know. How do you describe chemistry between people? Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. There are those that you naturally gravitate towards and those that you don't. Um, all of the things that you said are accurate. So, you know, I was the kid fan on the fence. Um, I did sidle up to him to try and get the photos next to the car or look through the window to understand what the cockpit looked like and all of that stuff. And we covered this off in the book. You know, one of the earliest recollections of that relationship was me uh, very tentatively asking Peter if he would write down on a piece of paper and describe a lap, a flying lap in the Rallycross Tirana, which I would then put into my, that was going to be my contribution to my school magazine <laughs> There wasn't a lot of learning going on about anything in the real world, but I wanted to be all over what was going on in car racing land. So good luck trying to spell or add. But if you wanted me to describe what was going on with the supercharged, what was a Tirana GTR, not an XU1, that was supercharged and part of the original Holden dealer team, then I was the bloke that had all the chat. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, and in fact, I, um, I it's a bit sad, really. I can still remember... I had a pencil case, so it would have been about 11 or 12, and the pencils had golf club head plastic caps on them. <laughs> and I remember I plucked out the pencil case, the, the the pencil with the plastic golf cap head, it's hard to say, and went, here's the block, you know, what I can't do with my adolescent voice or whatever, the pre-adolescent voice, um, and asked him if he'd do it, which he did, and I've still got it. It's around here somewhere. It's pretty doggy now, that bit of paper, but I've tried to protect it. So handwritten note from PV back in the day. Um, you know, And it was the way things were. There were no transporters. There, were, there wasn't even a tent. The, there was nothing in the way of equipment. There was an, I reckon it was about an, an HK model Holden panel van and a tandem trailer, and the panel van was duck egg light blue, and that was it. That was the Holden dealer team. And if you wanted to talk to Peter, you walked up and if you had the guts, you go, excuse me, sir, and th and that's the way it was. And then I remember he lent on the bonnet, and the bonnet was matte black, and it was a horrible-looking race car. It was painted yellow at the time, and I reckon Harry must have painted it with a broom or stood back, drank the, the paint and, you know what, squirted on it. So um, it was it was so ugly, and, um, and the bonnet was was ugly matte black, and I reckon all they did between events in those days, and there's some classic old photos of the original Holden Dealer team headquarters, which I think was in Hawthorne in Melbourne. It was just mm. it was yeah, a it mess. Was it was like a junkyard. And um, and then he, he just he wrote it all out. So um, I haven't really answered the core question, though, have I? So I don't know. We just got on well, so I was a bit of a fan. Um, like later on when he and Bev were living in Middle Park, 
uh, just alongside where the Grand Prix track is now at Albert Park in Melbourne, I, I would visit. And eventually, you know, I made my way through into aspects of the sport. And one day, the you know, when I came in a sports sedan, and one day the call came to have a drive for him, and and we always got on very well. And I guess the you know, try and shorten up what, what ends up being very long stories is that um, we had a personal and a professional relationship, one that involved ultimately driving race cars with him on multiple occasions, and there's a couple of photos around here of us doing that. Um, and I had the honour, uh, the deep honour of, um, you know, speaking at that state funeral and saying farewell, which, you know, even as I say it to you now, all these years later, still makes my hair stand up and we're, where, as you and I record this, we're we're on the verge of that anniversary coming up again in in early September. So um, yeah, we just I, I don't know. He just clicked with me. We we would laugh at the same stupid stuff. Um, he had a bit of a wacky sense of humour, and um, we were. Yeah, I think at the core of it all, we were just passionate about it. You know, our sport. He liked talking about it. I liked talking about it. It's probably as simple as that. You know, you, Brock and I would we, we'd hold court when we were driving together. We'd go to functions and stuff, and we'd just stand up there and we'd basically just bluster and bullshit for three hours and laugh at our own stupid gags. And Gow would be up the back shaking his head, pointing to his watch because the idea was we were supposed to arrive, jet in, do thirty minutes of chat, and get the hell out. And we'd still be there hours later. And, you know, Brock Lowndes has got the same disease. He'd be outside hours later signing everything, you know, the boot lid, the glove box lid, the gear lever, uh, the inside door trim, the uncles, aunties, cousins, left mirror. I mean, it just went on. So, um, yeah, we, we, we had a lot of fun. One of the things that we did unearth during the, the research for this book, well, you unearthed it. Um, obviously, a book is—it's uh, not a, an audio book, so we couldn't insert this in it because it's—it's—it's it's, it's words on a page. But you found the tape of what we think is your very first, and if it's not the very first, it's maybe second or third ever TV commentary doing motocross back in the seventies. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Um, you made me find it, I, and I had a feeling that it, it was somewhere around here. It was in a box. Um, it's a cassette. Hands up those listening to understand what a cassette is. <laughs> <laughs> what is what, that what, idiot? What, what is that idiot talking about? Yeah. Um, I, I think my brother, my younger brother, recorded it a thousand years ago, obviously, and it was it would have been an off-air recording. I don't know how he got it or why, but it was in like a box of rubbish and I often wondered what it was. So I got one of my editors that works with me here who's also motor racing, passionate, Young Will to, I go, and who's got a cassette player? Because I don't. You know, sure enough, he had one somewhere. And he brought it into work. And I said, chuck this in and see whether it plays. And it did. And I couldn't believe it. So then, because he understands the digital universe and, and I'm a Muppet, I said, can you figure out a way to get that audio onto a computer and so that we can keep it and share it with you? And he did, and I sent it to I sent it to Nath at Supercars, and I think I sent it to Larco or Scapey or whatever, and they, they just rolled their eyes and went back to sleep. But um, it's pretty funny because uh, it's pretty ropey. But that would have been in the late seventies, so uh, I don't reckon it was the first one, but it was it was certainly way back when. It was on the O10 network, 
again, hands up anyone who knows what the hell I'm talking about. So that's what's commonly known as Channel 10 today or Network 10. And um, it was a combined car and bike event or events at Broadford, north of Melbourne. And I was calling as a former, well, as a rider, not former rider, I was a rider at the time with a busted foot. I was sort of the, you know, the inverted commas expert. I was just a long-haired moron from Western Victoria. Um, this is something that'll make you laugh because my missus blows up when any of these old photos turn up. So I've got sort of curly to wavy hair if it grows. So in that period, if you pulled the back of my hair and sort of unfurled the curl, if you follow the English, my hair went to halfway down my back. So, and anyone that looks at those photos now throws up. So, uh, <laughs> and especially including my, my missus. So, so that you sort of got to picture the somewhat sort of grotty motocross riding, long haired, wolf head that was around in those days, somehow accidentally ending up involved in calling motocross because that's what I used to do, but I had a busted foot. And um, that's how that all started. So, yeah, we've got the – I'm looking at it. I, I can see the audio tape here. I thankfully haven't played it to myself because otherwise I, I wouldn't be very well. Well, how about as a little treat, we might roll 10 seconds of it no, for our listeners. How about we They'll love it. They'll love it. Come on, it'll be if, great. If I, let, let your Uncle Neil give you a tip. Now is the perfect time for a break. Have a beer, have a snack, have a leak, go do something. Give yourself a good 20 or 30 seconds, find an opportunity, go and find so go and paint the road or mow the grass and then come back and the conversation will continue. Don't listen to this. Thank you, Phil, once again, and uh, plenty of action ready to go here at Broadford once again for the first semi-final of the series. Here they go away for our event number six here today, the Class B for machines up to 125cc. Right, thanks, Ken, and number four, Lucas Reynolds, has shot into the lead already as they come into the Thomas Hardy loop. Then number 50, David Roberts, and number eight, Grant Knight. So we've got some good close racing very early on. As they negotiate the big jump, we go back through the field and see some very prominent riders there. I can assure you today that we're going to have a fantastic meeting. This is the first of the semi-finals. The atmosphere up here at the moment is truly ecstatic. It's really fantastic at the moment. There's 747, Ashley Barclay on the FMF Suzuki. He's been one of the very good point scorers over the series. But we're back with the leaders now. And there's number four, Lucas Reynolds, streaking into the lead. Ah, there you go. There you go. That was some gold for you. If you went to the Mow the Lawns or Paint the Road, as Neil requested before, you really missed out on some amazing podcast audio there. That's mm. that's golden mm. stuff, mate. That's It was yeah. only up from there, really, wasn't it? What did the Don say? Fake news? <laughs> it's been, it's, that's synthetically created, folks. That's not real. That's Aaron out the back with a couple of tin cans and a mate with a cassette recorder. <laughs> It's all rubbish. Come on now. Come on now. It was... Uh, Actually, that's a lie because it's a total lie because you wouldn't have a couple of mates. What am I talking about? Yeah, that's a fair point. I was going to say, it's a platform where everything grew from there. I'm trying to get serious again and you're trying to smash me. It's pretty standard, um, really. Another one I wanted to quickly talk to you about, 
you had the amazing chance to drive a current then or then current IndyCar. Lola Honda, Tasman Motorsport, Adrian Fernandez's car. It was a proper car in a proper test. It wasn't just because there was a television camera floating and do a slow lap, come back in. Tell me what that thing was like to drive because that era of uh, what became champ car, car, Indy car, whatever you want to call it, was stunning. Big money, manufacturers spending a lot of money, cars that went amazingly fast, total rocket ship, just nothing like what they, they run these days. Uh, it was a great opportunity. It was in uh, the Lola chassis, um, which is one of the two or three chassis that were around at the time in cart um, or IndyCar racing, as it's better known, uh, with a V8 twin-turbo, twin-cam Honda IndyCar engine on the back of it. And it was towards the back end of 1996, in the last quarter of 1996. don't remember the exact date. Um, and it was with Steve Horn, who I, I ended up driving for in 1997 in the touring car project up there. And um, it was a, it was an enormous thrill to answer the question. It was an incredibly powerful car. So when I first... When we got there, we got there the day before. It was up in um, a little track called Gingerman Raceway in Michigan in North America, and it was a lovely mild day when we arrived. We'd flown up there privately with the core crew, the technical director, the engineer, team owner, and various technicians. And um, and it was, you know, I went around and around and around in a Honda Accord road car just to sort of get a bit of a look at the track. When we came back the next day, it was freezing cold, like seriously cold. So... In Fahrenheit terms, you know, it would have been a late 70s, early 80s temperature the day before, and Penske had been there the day before that with Paul Tracy. And then when we went back on the test day, it was like 42 degrees or something, like wasn't it? It was only barely above freezing. So it was it was it was horrible. So the first recollections of the experience it was terrifying on a cold tire because this was a car in wound down boost with 40 inches of boost, had something in the order of 750-odd horsepower in a 650, 700-kilo car. Um, and then after the tyres were warmed and the exploratories were done and the installation laps and all the basics were ticked off and it sort of started to found, uh, find some fundamental rhythm, uh, they, they gave me the rest of the boost, which was another five inches, if my recollection's right, took it to 45 inches of boost, so now it's a 900 horsepower race car, and um, yeah, it was a phenomenal thing. Um, so look, I wasn't, you know, at that stage I'd been out of open wheelers for whatever it was, five or six years. I hadn't driven a 3000 or a Formula Holden car or anything like for quite some time. So very much in the frame of mind, you know, very much a touring car reference. Um, and I was driving for Wayne Gardner and Coke at the time. Uh, in 1996, but uh, it was a monstrous thrill, you know, in the low gears in you know, first, second, third, and even a little bit of fourth gear, um, just the longitudinal force on your head, just pushing you back in the in the seat was phenomenal. And, you know, the braking performance was phenomenal and, uh, you know, all in all, thoroughly enjoyable, you know, proper thoroughbred, purpose-built weapon of a race car and a great thrill to be able to spend a day in that. And, uh they fed me lots of new Firestone tyres and um, did lots of things. We mucked around. Diane Hull was the engineer. Diane um, had come from, she worked for John Barnard. She worked at Ferrari and worked at Benetton and um, was a senior engineer. And then she was working at Tasman, lovely, an English lady, lovely lady. 
uh, very, very intelligent, uh, very clever. And then she went on to, and I think she's still working in NASCAR to this day. She sort of went backwards and forwards a little bit, I think, with in IndyCar, and then she carved out a career in uh, in NASCAR. I think she was at Michael Waltrip Racing for a while. I've lost contact with her, but um, yeah, really seriously cool thing to do. So there's a few nice photos floating around of, of that, and um, I think I said in the book, um, bittersweet experience in some respects because on the one hand, it was great to do it. On the other hand, and at that stage I was 36, so I've really had gone out the gate or out the window of the opportunity to try and do something like that. But it kind of made me a bit melancholy, melancholy because I, f- I felt as though I now had a proper understanding of what I knew I'd missed because I tried very hard from about 19... 89 or 90 onwards to see whether I could find a way into Indy Lights or Indy Car, but I could never put it together. Um, but still, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's all part of the, all part of the fun, all part of the journey, and uh, it was a really cool thing to do. But, yeah, serious weapon that uh, I would love to ultimately have been able to do what Jason Bright tried to do, Paul Morris tried to do it, Scott um, McLaughlin is doing it, um, Will Power has done it, is doing it. It's just unbelievable to be able to run in that series and to be in that um, North American road racing tour. It'd be very, very cool. We well, did get to be in the tour because the next year you went back to drive the, the Honda Accord, the Super Touring 2-litre car, the North American Touring Car Championship. What did you love about American racing? What do you love? I know you still follow it quite closely with all the, the various categories, but what's what floats your boat about the way Americans do motor racing versus, say, the, the way that Europeans do? Oh, they're real hardcore races. Um, you know, I think it's just the racing, the racing ethos. They're, they're, um, there's a lot of it up there. You know, every weekend there's a lot of motorsport going on, particularly in certain corners of the country at many, many levels. So, yeah, you go to the performance racing industry show, the PRI show, which is typically held November, December. It was in Columbus, Ohio, where I lived at one stage, and then it was in, I think, Indy, and it's been in Indy more recently. I think it went to Florida at some point or maybe North Carolina at one stage. might be back at Indy again. I tried to go to it a few years ago. Um, but, you know, they, they have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of trade people going to that show from all around the world. It's just the hub of a lot of motorsports. So... There's an enormous amount of technical knowledge there. There's a lot of passionate people and there's a lot of it unfolding speedways and and motorcycle racing and road racing and sports cars and open wheel and all sorts of stuff. So I just, and the tracks are cool, um, just the attitude. And, um, you know, there's a very different attitude in Europe versus, versus North America, but I just really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the people. I still do to this day. I still have a connection to uh, North American motorsport, and um, I talked to lots of friends up there still. And, um, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a really great period. Um, I wouldn't change a thing about – I said this in the book – I wouldn't wouldn't change a thing about my life. You can have all sorts of ifs, buts, and maybes about what coulda, woulda, shoulda. I actually don't care these days. I'm really proud of the fact that that was a a good sort of 18 months of my life, Uh, and I've done countless trips up there over a long period of time and uh, thoroughly enjoy the whole sort of North American racing thing. So it's funny because I, I flick a few texts backwards and forwards with McLaughlin at the moment uh, about all that stuff, and, uh, you know, he's loving it. So when he went to Mid-Ohio, which was our home track, you know, I was busy sort of 
bantering with him about about that. And it'd be the same Georgie when he goes to Laguna Seca. He's already had a test there and he sent me the, the GoPro vision off the car. You know, what do you reckon? And, you know, <laughs> you know so silly old bobblehead me sitting there looking at every bit of it, daydreaming. Uh, but, you know, really, really cool. Some bloody great tracks there. So I loved, loved Long Beach, really loved Mid-Ohio, um, I love the two tracks in Canada. You know, the Vancouver and Toronto were were very cool. Um, yeah, there was there was lots to enjoy there. It did help that you wanted a few of those too. They they always make them favourite tracks when you you win at them yeah. over over the journey, don't they? It's funny how that happens. Yeah, but it's just I think it was you know just forgetting the sporting aspects of whether you did good or bad. Um, actually, the thing that I the, the real takeout was there's there was a great spirit um, and camaraderie in motor racing up there was really different to hear Aaron like really you know if I back to back the experience and I'll give you a classic example I don't mean to be demeaning the industry here because you know that I love it and I'm very much a part of it but there was very little if you take 1997 and I raced here in 1997 I did the super touring Bathurst I did the main Bathurst and I did a couple of other drives for Wayne in the coke car here and there I did a Gold Coast maybe a Sandown could have been maybe one Maybe park as well. yeah, yeah. So, so you know, four or five local events. I didn't want to completely lose touch with what was going on, and then I did a full season of um, of, of racing in the US, racing and testing in the US. So, you, you get to the typical wind up point in an Australian event, and it's the same to this day. And I know there's a little bit of socialising, and I, certainly I wasn't in motor racing, and I'm still not to this day for the social aspects at all, but. Everyone blasts out of the track. You know, you, let's just pick Sandown, right? So you pack up your gear, all your sweaty junk, what have you. The car gets pushed back into the truck. You race back to the airport at Tullamarine. You jump on the airplane and you get back, in my case, get back home to Sydney. Day done, you know, you, and then you either went okay in the race or you didn't or somewhere in the middle where it wasn't particularly notable. Lots of colleagues, lots of friends. Some of them at any given moment you might have been in some sort of a war with competitively, but fundamentally they're kind of your friends and peers and colleagues and there's all the scuttlebutt of the day but there wasn't any uh let's get together out the back of the paddock and have a barbecue or we'll have a beer or talk about how you tried to push me off at turn three or what there sort of wasn't a lot of that in fact there's a lot of the time and it's probably still prevalent to this day there's a lot of uh, pretty serious politicking you know pretty serious ag goes on between different levels of competitors because they're all you know, the stakes have gone up in recent years and there's there's a lot to play for. So it's anything but a social environment. In the States, and I'm going to talk specifically about the IndyCar stuff now, and it might be the fact that they camped at the tracks, could have been part of this, but I can remember Barry and Kim Green ran Team Cool Green, which was a serious operation, the IndyCar operation at the time, and Dario Franchitti, Paul Tracy, Parker Johnston and others. I can't, they used to run three cars. Sometimes they would run Indy Lights cars. And so I remember going, I reckon it was at Road America at one stage. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the track. Yeah, Road America, I reckon it was. And I remember the being in the Tasman sort of hospitality transporter area and there was a real feeling in North America when, when the racing stopped, that hickory barbecue smell would sort of permeate the, the paddock and I think the fact that the punters stay there, you know, the fans stayed there as well, changes the dynamic of the atmosphere. And there'd just be this, you know, I can remember the soccer games 
near the transporter and you'd have Dario, Paul Tracy, you know, Dario's still a consultant to Chip Ganassi now. Paul is doing the call with Lee Diffie um, on the television coverage. You have Elio, who was my teammate in the Indy Lights program, Elio Castro Neves, who just won his fourth Indy. Tony Canaan, Andre Ribeiro, who we sadly lost just recently, Adrian Fernandez, and then, you know, just a myriad of Jimmy Fasser and, uh, I don't know, I'm going to just drop names, Alex Sonardi or whoever it may have been at the and they're all just together. And it, it sort of struck me as being strange because you'd watch in qualifying or in the racing and they'd be like they'd look like they'd be trying to kill each other on the racetrack. And then they're sort of socializing at the end of the day and they're wandering from motorhome to motorhome. And there's, you know, there certainly wasn't alcohol when they're in the middle of the race meeting, but it just had a casual vibe. You know, they had shorts and t-shirts and they're kicking the soccer ball or they're playing volley. There was a huge amount of volleyball going on all the time. And, you know, we'd all be a part of that, the touring car drivers and the Indy Lights drivers, like a big travelling circus. And I never sensed that here. And I'm never, I've never been 100% sure why. I don't know whether it's an attitudinal thing or it might just be an environmental thing that, you know, I think in the case of a lot of the Indy car drivers, they're more financially secure, which probably makes them a bit more comfortable in their own skin than what goes on here. But maybe it's just the fact that they, you know, they all had lovely motorhomes and stuff and they all just parked up that night and that was the environment they lived in and the, and the fans were a bit the same. But, you know, really dramatic difference in the vibe between the way the racing was executed across the entire weekend. Just a very different feeling. So I can, I'm finding it hard to describe, um, but, but really good to be a part of that, to sort of do that. And, you know, some of the... They, they weren't like they're not wild parties or anything, but the different teams would have different things from week to week. Penske one week, and then Chip Ganassi the next, and Team Cool Green, and then Tasman will come over to our area and eat. And yeah, it's just very different, very, very different vibe. Yeah, it's an interesting take, isn't it? And that motorhome thing with the IndyCar drivers continues. I mean, when they go to the Speedway at Indianapolis, they it's not a case like for us at Bathurst hire houses or uh, stay in hotels or camp or whatever, they get their motorhomes and they line them all up there and they live there for the month virtually yeah. alongside one another. So I think that's where that camaraderie comes from and, and it's oh, managed to continue yeah. on for that series. In those and they've got, some of those drivers have got ridiculous motorhomes and buses and stuff. You know, McLaughlin's got a nice one these days. But actually the last time that I was at Indy, which I think was 2017, um, I'm wandering through the paddock. You know, I had the had a, the groovy pass, and I spotted Canaan's bus, and I and you know I knocked on the door. There was no answer, so I sent him a text, and I said, uh, "Hey, idiot! You know it's me. And if you don't open the door and let me in, I'm going to slash the tires on this big black shiny beast." So uh, I won't tell you what the response was. It was inappropriate, um, <laughs> but he was downtown and the driver parade. So then I I I faked. You know, I recorded on the phone. I faked, you know, the hissing tyre sound and sent it to him, you know. So um, I said, oh, I've lowered the ride height of your bus. It should handle a bit better now. So, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a bit of fun. I think there's plenty of pranks that those IndyCar drivers play on one another with their, their motorhomes. So I think they're a bit protective when anyone describes slashing their tyres to be able to yeah. get to the, the and next what about And what about Elio? Holy hell, like, he just, you know, he comes, he, he, he ends up not at Penske, in 2021, and then he comes back and he wins a, a, another indie this year. I mean, geez, it's unbelievable. Like, I can't believe, because those those guys were, 
almost like, well, we carried on like brothers. So it was sort of big brother, little brother nonsense that went on all the time. And then you watch those guys and their careers unfold to become IndyCar Series champions and and uh, 500 winners. And it's just fantastic to see because those kids worked hard. You know, they did it tough to get to get there. So it's, it's cool. I, I still thoroughly enjoy watching it to this day because there's so many people that we know in it, you know, and you watch McLaughlin doing his thing and Will Power and those two boys that I mentioned. And, you know, it's, it's very cool to to see the connection, see what Scotty Dixon's done over a long period of time. It's great to see Australasian motorsport make such a big impact in North America. Well, Alio's not only won a fourth Indy 500, I think he's 45, 46. Yeah. It's got him a full-time drive. He's back in IndyCar full-time yeah. next year. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's totally nuts. It's uh, good on him. You know, it's, uh, and um, what you see is what you get, folks. So the, the Elio, the larger-than-life, effervescent character that you see on television is exactly the maniac that sits down and has dinner with you and uh yeah he's a he's a pretty cool character so good at put on him they're 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 all really great characters yeah they've achieved some some amazing things i love what indycar racing has returned to being after a, a period of it being a, a bit of a struggle it's a cool series to watch this year i've let, let it thoroughly be, thoroughly enjoyed it let it be a lesson aaron in division in division in the sport, you don't do it. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. No, no. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other series. Yeah, I'm of not podcasts. going there. That's the only little bit of that that I'll drop. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's true. The the infamous split of the mid nineties, which uh, uh, the only winner out of that wasn't Cart, wasn't IRL, it was NASCAR. There's no doubt. But that's another chat for another day, um, mate. We've had a lot of questions, a lot of fans uh, since this book's been announced and, and that it's coming out early October. Um, they all want to know how you're going. So I guess we'll ask it. How are you going? How are you travelling? Um, very well, thank you. So in all seriousness, because um, I goof off a bit with you, but uh, tremendous uh, outcome. Operation went well. The aftermath's going well. There's an ongoing monitoring to make sure that it stays that way. You're never 100% out of the woods. It was a pretty um, frightening time, quite frankly. And... Um, the, re- the response and the support and the messages of, of care and love and and concern, you know, were really uh, uplifting. And, I yes, I know I'm a heathen. I'm, I'm the last Mohican on the planet that doesn't have social media. But, um, but you know, it, some of the stuff still came through to me through various sources and it was humbling. And, you know, it's hard to actually find the right words that don't sound like you're just reading off a script <clears throat> in that regard. But it was... Um, yeah, it was a um, seismic shift in my life and um, a hell of a wake-up call uh, of how dramatically sideways things can go and, and a, but a, a beautiful reckoning that, um, you know, whatever I've done, again, good, bad or indifferent in, in motorsport along the way, there's certainly, I, mean, like, I, I won't be everybody's cup of tea by any stretch of the imagination, but there's certainly some people out there that have enjoyed my work and, and they express that, and you know, it's a really, it's a, it's a really lovely thing because it's a strange, it's a sort of a really strange thing doing TV or even stuff like this because you just, you, you're just this sort of theory or you're this, you're like this branded thing. But you know, I'm just, I'm just the same as everybody else. Just I happen to like my job is car racing related, and and I just happen to like it, and I've been able to make a living out of it. So I, I find it somewhat bizarre that it's interesting, like so much that, so that you can make the book out of it. <laughs> um, yeah. 
certainly um, really thankful for for all of the, the those kind messages. But not all going good, and um, not a hundred percent healthy right now, frankly, but very close to it. So uh, you know, there's still a few little things that I'm um, that I'm that I'm just sort of navigating around. But you know, unbelievable team of doctors. And, um, you know, I thought long and hard where, you know, I sort of found out about this um, while we were still on air and doing our thing and we were still able to race before all the lockdowns happened. And for a while I sort of carried it around with me and in the end I just thought, you know what, we just need to tell it as it is because it's going to look weird when I evaporate. So um, that, that created a bit of a wave of, of uh, interest in the topic, um, which probably got made things even harder again, but um, it's all worked out so so far so good. Glad to hear it, and I'm sure all of our listeners would uh, echo those sentiments as well. We, we really appreciate you uh, uh, talking about it a little bit more. Uh, I was going to say, the book will not be sold by the kilo. It will be sold by copies, by the way. It's uh, best seat in the house. Pre-orders are open now. Perfect Christmas present, or if you want an early Christmas present, we're not against that. You know, if you want to get it in October, November, and you can't wait to unwrap it under the tree, by all means, go for it. Head to the website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. We will zap it out to you as soon as we get it from HarperCollins, the publishers. It's due out for release in early October. 352 pages, Crompo, tens of thousands of words, but importantly, there's some photos there as well. So if you don't like words, there's a few photos there to get you by as well. And a couple of crosswords in case you get bored along the way. You know. <laughs> no Sudoku on page 362. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, folks, uh, if you really like it, it's all me. If it sucks, it's Noonan's fault. <laughs> Gee, thanks. This is worked out well. I'm borrowing from the Bradley Jones methodology of how you measure and rate things here. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, appreciate it. Well, there is a bit of Bradley stuff in there. There's Brock, there's Perkins, there's Moffat, there's Johnson, there's Bathurst, there's um, IndyCar, there's there's all sorts of covering an amazing journey. You've got plenty of chapters left to write. We will have to update this book in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years because you've got heaps more races to call, heaps more stuff to do and uh, heaps more things to contribute to the sport, mate. So uh, it's been a pile of fun. I hope you. I hope it wasn't too hard of a process no, for no, you. I no, hope no. you've actually enjoyed it. Live to tell the tale. So thank you. Um, <laughs> That's, I, am I officially podded, or am I, I think- encapsulated by a pod? I think you have been potted. Um, I think that's a thing. You've just uh, made it a thing. So, no, thank you, mate. Thanks, thanks for the interest, and um, yeah, happy to uh, have the conversation. Thanks for all your hard work, and sort of putting together uh, that book. Um, it did come at a poignant time, and you know because we discussed it at the end. Do do we do we kind of try and find a way? Do we hang off and try and find a way to get to a happy ending, which which we did. Um, the little footnote, by the way, in the pathology uh, from it all is had we not accidentally tripped over what happened, which was pretty much accidental, I would have been dead somewhere in a, between a year and five years from now. So, um, you know, just to have this conversation and just to be able to continue to work in the supercar environment, talk about car racing and, you know, continuing the production and stuff that we do here on a daily basis is just monstrous for me. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, how good was it? Crompo in very, very good form there. Uh, And I just sensed a little bit of looseness 
in Crompo in that chat. Normally, he's very straighty 180, but a couple of whacks either way from me to him and him to me, I would expect nothing less. It was great to have him on. Really appreciated his time to uh, to sit down and have a chat. I hope you enjoyed this episode and a bit of a, a chin wag with Uncle Neil, as we call him, because... He's Uncle Neil. There's, there's really nothing else you can call him, is there? Don't forget, pre-order the book. It is best seat in the house. It's out very soon. Bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. It's a ripper. Uh, it's packed with great stories of his career and his upbringing and his television career and racing. Um, it was really enjoyable to work with this on him, uh, work with him on this book, I should say. So I hope you really get a lot out of it. Jump in, pre-order now. So as soon as we get them from the publisher and the publication date arrives, we can send them straight to you. Don't forget, subscribe to our newsletter through the v8sleuth.com.au website. Follow us on the socials. You know where to find us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're all pretty active. We've got plenty going on in those places as well. Anyway, that's us done. V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco is sorted. Next week, Jess Yates from Fox Sports joins me on the pod. We'll chat to you then. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.